Let's take it to the edge. Let's get the flitting. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly from KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 024, going inside Interbark with Andy Tran. How you doing, Kyle? Pretty good, Dan. Been a busy week working on a first batch of knives cut out for Blade, so gotta, gotta try to get those started as soon as I can. Yeah, it is the time. I started, um, I stepped up to the grinder for the first time in a little over two months today. How was that? The most frustrating part about starting over is knowing that at one time you were pretty good at something. (laughs) I'm sure you're probably pretty decent still. Um, Well, let's just say everything wound up with a full height grind today. Some people really like those. That's what I usually end up doing regardless. Yeah, but, I mean, a couple of them started as candy grinds, and by the time I got everything cleaned up, I was uh, I was at a full hype grind. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, I always loved what I heard Jerry Fisk was quoted saying is, inside every uh, 14-inch buoy is a 3-inch paring knife. Yeah. So. <laughs> and the great thing about spec work is it's never wrong. Yeah, that's, that was how I decided to do that. Yeah, totally. How's the bicep? Uh, doing really good. Uh, I've started PT. Uh, I'm on the plus side is I'm way ahead of best case scenario. Awesome. Which which makes me the prettiest ugly girl at the dance. <laughs> nice. Um, no, it is all things considered. I'm doing great. I'm already back at the grinder. Uh, it's just going to take a little while to to build up my endurance and the the small muscle control again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should be back about another month, and I'll be back full speed. Very cool. I saw you were doing some straight razor, uh, re- replaceable blade straight razor handles. Yeah, I, um, you know, it was a fun little side project, and it was it got me back in front of the grinder to do some handles. And a lot of the local barbers, um, I think it varies from state to state, but here in South Carolina. They have to use uh, disposable blades on their razors, even straight razors. Hmm. So I started doing uh, custom handles for them for their. It's not a true straight razor because it doesn't have the the hollow ground blade. Mm-hmm. It's a specially designed. I call it an arm. I can't even call it a blade that holds a a single side disposable razor blade. So do they use that like for for a couple people, or is that like a single use type thing? Yeah, uh, each customer, they're supposed to switch out to a new blade. Really? Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a hygiene thing with, you know, blood-borne communicable diseases and that sort of thing. Rather than, you know, the state in its infinite wisdom, rather than trusting barbers to actually clean their tools, just say, you got to have a new blade with every client. Huh. It's interesting. 
Do you have to uh, do you have to switch it out if you go upstairs and downstairs, or is it just per person? Um, I would answer that question, but I don't know who you are because it's just Kyle and I talking right now. We 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 don't have a guest yet because they haven't been introduced. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but if someone had asked that question, as long as it's on the same person, it can be the same blade. Not safe for work. Bleep that. Can't use that. You know, Kyle, you haven't been around Andy and I before. <laughs> you, you, I probably should have warned you this is the best it's going to be tonight. Uh, yeah. Well, well, here's the thing. Like, if, if a kid understands what we're talking about, that's on the parents, not us. So, you know. Hey, is that the ghost in the machine? Or are we haunted? Cause... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Andy, if you've not, if you've not listened to the Dylan Fletcher episode, that one, uh, we go wildly off uh, topic there a few times. I like it. Off topic. Let's talk about our sponsors tonight. Yeah. So we got uh, Dragonfly Bladeworks, John Kaufman. He's the the head honcho over there. He does uh, some awesome blades with uh, eighth inch pins. Does like a, a line of them across the top spine. Turns out really cool. He does really cool bla- uh, pin work in general. I mean, he that eight pin configuration is cool, but he does some really funky patterns as well that that I really like. Mm-hmm. Um. And the precision that it takes to get all of that to line up. Uh, some people can't really appreciate it. I'm laying it out as one thing, but trying to get freehand drilling your holes on a press and getting that thousandth inch accuracy so everything lines up is is very challenging. That's a skill of its own. Yeah. And uh, got Dogwood Custom Knives. Dogwood Custom Knives for all of your bushcraft and kitchen needs and KH daily knives for when your weekly knives just aren't cutting it anymore. Oh, that was a, that's a, uh, that's a reference to uh, a couple episodes back when we were talking about the tabletop champions. I asked a question on there and they gave me that tagline. Uh, I don't know if any of them know what I actually do, but (laughs) it's pretty funny. So if you haven't checked out uh, tabletop champions, uh, go check that podcast out. And go back a couple of podcasts. We're not going to tell you which one. You're just going to have to go back for a few and figure out which uh, which podcast we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that was the one with Jason and Sarah, the the leatherworking episode. So go check that one out. Okay, I guess we are going to tell you. It's uh, the one with Jason <laughs> and Sarah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you can find Cage Daily Knives, Dogwood Custom Knives, and Dragonfly Bleedworks Knives at Old Town Cutlery. And... Uh, Lee has said that if you can misspell their website, it will uh, automatically get you there. So try to misspell it and uh, uh, let them know if you can. And you can find... If you can misspell it so badly that... Wow, that's that's really harder to explain than I thought it would be. <laughs> Swing and a miss. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Got, uh, and you can also find Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center and The Knife House. So check those places out for Dogwood Custom Knives. And uh, you should hear in about a month when Dan gets back at it, those places should start filling up with knives again. Uh, by the time this airs, I should have a couple of outdoor knives at Old Town that were on the bench and I didn't quite finish before I went into surgery. And okay. I've the last couple of days finishing those up. What cool hand material is on those? Um, so one of them has hemp blossoms stabilized hemp blossoms awesome it is part of my new 420 series 
and another has stabilized cattails. And then I've got a couple of just nice traditional fiddleback maple um, and black walnut handles. Yeah, now that uh, weed is legal in Illinois, one of the the people we were talking to, I made a joke that uh, all of April was 420 this year. And uh, the pothead I was talking to's eyes got like the size of dinner plates. He was so excited. And bloodshot. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for all you guys don't know, all of April this year is 420 because, uh, hey, yep. Sh- sh- hey, we. We got a cop on the podcast. You can't say that. <laughs> it's it's legal here. So oh okay. <laughs> I I don't per, I don't per plan on partaking partially because I can't with my uh, commercial driver's license. So yeah yeah sure no we we totally believe you man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you've met me, you you would totally believe me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, you got some shout outs. Um. Uh, have we talked about the uh, the carbon fiber and the um, the really funky uh, colored glass that uh, Johnny Blaze does? Uh, maybe I can't remember. Go ahead and talk about it. Uh, if we haven't, I'm going to talk about it anyway. He does chatoyant carbon fiber. So you know the inner light that you get from some black walnut or maple, where when it polishes up, it really looks like there's light inside of the wood. Yeah, like the curly figure. Yeah. Oh, well, no, uh, the shimmering effect. Yeah, I mean, usually you see it a lot in curly textured yeah. wood. Yeah. Like koa. Yes, a better example. Uh, that's called chatoyance, and he has figured out a way to do carbon fiber so it has that that internal shimmer, that chatoyance to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as I know, he's the only person in the world that can do it, and it is freaking awesome. Very cool. Uh, and then he also does some, uh, man, it almost looks like a colored picture from an electron microscope or um, bacteria growth, these funky iridescent colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've got this this kind of pebbly texture to them. It's amazing um, that he'll cast with a, a clear layer over it so that you can shape the handle and not lose that that color and that texture. Okay, that is is absolutely outstanding. And again, I have not seen anybody else in the world that could, that's doing what he's doing. Yeah, very cool. And then uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, this this little YouTube channel called Inner Bark Outdoors. I am now. <laughs> no, I've I've watched a few. It's always I've always enjoyed the the nature shots and some of like the drone footage and stuff that. He usually has. Uh, and I, I really enjoy the quality of the videos, the production quality. Mm-hmm. And I like that Andy is really down to earth. Um, there's not a lot of ego in his videos. It's just straightforward how to. And I like the, his perspective of he's going to just show you how he does it. And it works. He's not saying it's the best way. He's not saying it's the right way, the wrong way. He's just saying this is how I do it, and look, it works. And he doesn't do a lot of the the shenanigans. I mean, it's not shot in the backyard. Um, it's he doesn't do he doesn't do fifteen takes to get the one that's just right. No, no Zanfir music in the background. No, and uh, I, I appreciate the. 
the the production quality is so good that it seems a little slick, but when you watch him, he's very genuine, and that's that's pretty rare. I appreciate that as well as his knowledge. Very cool. That's all the nice things I'm going to say about Duke Kaboom. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh. All right, you want to inter- introduce that uh, person you were just talking about? Yeah, I could. <laughs> um, so Andy Tran and I were on the first global bushcraft trip uh, with Joe Flowers. I would, I, I think I can honestly say, I'm sure Andy will correct me, but very quickly realized um, kind of kindred spirits in each other, really got along, had a great job on that trip or a great time on that trip. And then was fortunate enough to meet up with him again at SHOT Show and just realized that not only is he an incredibly knowledgeable guy, but he's a really genuine individual and he very much practices, practices what he preaches. I mean, the, the stuff he teaches on his videos is stuff he gets out and does every day. And and that's a big part of what impressed me. Okay, so I lied. I'm going to say a couple other nice things about the guy. Um, he's also a really, I guess he's got at least two knife designs out there that are pretty practical designs. I was always really opposed to the big heavy choppers until he finally kind of, no, just... I know you don't like big knives. Take my knife out. And it is, it's the most practical big knife I've ever used. Yeah. Very cool. And without further to do, Andy Tran, now you can speak. I mean, welcome to the show. Hello. I don't know what to do with my hands, but it's good to be here. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing it's audio only. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, Andy, where'd you grow up kind of learning the outdoor stuff and everything? I was... Born and raised in Seattle, which is kind of funny because, I mean, I'm, I'm very Asian. So whenever I'm like, yeah, I'm from Seattle, Washington, they're like, yeah, but where are you really from? And I'm like, uh, the neighborhood of Ballard. No, 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 no. Where are you really from? And I'm like, uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, I uh, born and raised in Seattle, lived here most of my life. I went to Big Bend National Park for a bit for my first stint in law enforcement and then went back to sort of my home roots and did some time at uh, Mount Rainier National Park as a backcountry ranger. And so I I lived for the most part in Seattle, Washington, but I did a lot of traveling. And that was the good part about my job is that uh, because I wasn't tied to an office or a location, uh, I, I just traveled pretty much anywhere where I wanted to until I got a real job. So now uh, now things are a little bit harder to do traveling, but we still we still get out and do stuff. Very cool. Are you still in Washington now or? I sure am. Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, it's really mild weather and I like the mountains and I like the fact that you can go from like a, a legit rainforest to straight up high desert all within like a three hour drive. So yeah, if I wanted to go rock climbing, you know, in the desert, I can do that. If I wanted to go mountain biking, can do that. Uh, river rafting, we have like awesome, like class five rapids here. So just kind of kind of something for everyone as long as you're into the outdoors. Yeah. Well, I mean if you're like into the indoor stuff too, you know, cuz we got we got buildings and <laughs> uh and shopping <laughs> malls and stuff like that too. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got a lot of a lot of strip malls around here. Uh the Chicago land area is big fans of their strip malls, especially in the uh 
the city and the the suburbs and stuff. Yeah, it makes drive-by shootings a lot easier that way. <laughs> Andy has never personally been in a mall, but he can say that they are in his area. If you uh, if you ever want to check out something interesting, I guess this is kind of a shout out. You could check out the website called HeyJackass.com, and it's a uh, it's a whole website about uh, promoting Chicago's uh, values, and it shows you uh, <laughs> the uh, it has uh, the shadow meter, how many people have been shot year to date, uh, how many, and it has like shot placement, uh, all sorts of stats on shootings and stuff of the Chicago land area. That's amazing. The deadliest sub, the deadliest hoods, all that stuff. It's pretty, pretty hilarious. Yeah, everybody needs a hobby. I like statistics, and you know, like you go for the pizza, but you stay because you got murdered. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I thought you were. I thought you were going to make a, uh, a like gr- pie graph reference there. <laughs> oh, missed opportunity. <laughs> wow the, the asian kid passed on some math i didn't see that coming <laughs> nice oh man we're gonna get in trouble for this podcast andy what was your first knife my first knife um yeah well, what's the first one you remember having i think it was a buck hunter 110 uh okay. like that the, with the solid yes yeah, it's a, you know because you could pretty much get one anywhere but it was the knife that I remember my dad carrying everywhere he went. And so uh, he used to, you know, open cans with it, cut rope, you know, branches, small branches, things like that. So for me, that was like my first my first experience with a knife that pretty much did everything that you needed it to. And that's the like that was what I considered an EDC knife before the word or the term EDC really came out. So I think I probably got that knife when I was like somewhere between the ages of eight or 10, but yeah, that was a cool knife. Nice. So as you know, we have the classic, how did you meet your wife, Dan Kyle scale? Hmm. We met cause we were uh, like pen pals in middle school. And then uh, we kind of like you know, drifted apart a little bit. And then uh, like end of high school, uh, I looked her up on Facebook and I was like, not to quote myself, but I was like, you remember me? And she was like, yeah, I remember you. And it, we kind of just hit it off from there. So that was, that was kind of it. Ooh, that, that's a hard one to rank. Yeah, that kind I mean, of has uh, elements of both, I think, there. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a solid Kyle picket fence story until we got to the, hey, f- to remember me. And then, <laughs> yeah, it, it started to get a little dark and uncomfortable again. <laughs> nice. So how were you able to to balance the wife, all the the other stuff you have to do, the YouTube channel, your knife designs and everything? Cabin rehab, uh, being a law enforcement officer, your night job. I mean, I'll let you know once I figure it out. (laughs) Um, You know, it's that is the most honest answer we have gotten today. No, but like (laughs) to be to be fair, you know, like I'm, I'm also starting up school again. You know, when I got out of high school, I only did. Uh, film school for a year and at that time right out of high school i was also running a uh a video production business and so i never really went for my degree which is really weird for someone um with my cultural background and so i i uh finally decided to go and at least get my associates um not so much for the education but for the three and a half percent raise that my agency gives me uh for having a degree so and i was talking to the wife actually about this yesterday and I was like, man, 
I'm kind of jealous about all my friends because all they have to worry about is going to work and coming home. And that's it. Like when I get home, you know, I might be editing, I might be answering business emails, I might, you know, X, Y, Z. And I found that if uh, I don't have a lot of the stuff that uh, guys of this generation do for fun, then I can do a whole lot more. Like I, I haven't played a video game in probably 10 years. You know, I don't go out drinking. I don't do all the stuff. And um, a lot of my time is spent, I guess, doing production or, um, you know, making business connections and things like that, doing pre-production. Uh, and then now, like just yesterday, my agency's uh, training unit wanted me to partner up with them to do some training videos for the agency. And I'm so I'm like, Ugh, there's lots of stuff. Um, but in short, it's really difficult. Uh, I don't think I got it. They uh, dialed in or or nailed in quite yet, but essentially just getting rid of all the it's a trap that we think we need. Um, and it's not that I'm not happy; I'm totally happy. It's just uh, you know my my life. Well, not, <laughs> my life's not normal. You know, if you if you take a day to day of what I do, uh, it's definitely it, it doesn't look like a lot of other people's day to day. I found it was easier just to give up sleep. I tried that, and then I started falling asleep uh, behind the wheel of the patrol car, and that's not good. You know, it, it sounds like it's really more of a the passenger problem to me. <laughs> well, if you if you turn your uh, overhead lights on, your emergency lights, everyone gets out of the way, so problem solved. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. You don't have to worry about anybody grabbing the wheel? I, I, I see that this is really a chance for a good, comfortable nap. <laughs> so, uh... It sounds like you kind of self-taught for most of your, your filmmaking and YouTube stuff, or how'd you get started with doing that? Uh, so I did film production in high school, and I kind of like, you know, I was doing uh, the biotechnology academy at the same time. So it was a diff- like a big stark difference between like hardcore book work and then also more creative artistic work. And I found that I could spend hours doing video production stuff and it wouldn't even feel like a minute has passed by. Whereas doing all the book work, while it, it kind of came easy to me, was like a real drag. And um, I, I couldn't see myself doing that in long term. And so uh, I did that. We won a few awards through documentary filmmaking. And then I went into film school uh, after that for a year after high school. And so that was kind of what kickstarted it. And I was working pretty much full-time doing video production. Uh, and when I mean full-time, I meant I worked three months out of the year, and that made enough money for me to do whatever the hell I wanted to for the rest of the year. And the wife was basically like, hey, um, you should keep your cameras warm and keep your skills up by doing YouTube, because there's a lot of people that do YouTube. And I was like, well, that's BS, because I've never heard of anyone doing that. And then back then, like people were filming with like GoPros and like little, you know, mom, mom and pop camcorders and stuff like that. But like nothing fancy was a big deal back then, or I guess he still is. Uh, and I was like, well, people could actually do this. And so I started and that was that. Very cool. So what kind of equipment do you, you use? You said a lot of people were using GoPros and stuff. Do you use similar cameras and stuff or? Uh, I am still using the same camera that I used when I went to the Amazon jungle with Dan. And so, like, despite the fact that I've, like, kind of low-key been trying to kill that thing, it's still ticking. Um, 
but before I before that one, I had a shoulder mounted like uh, new style camera because um, the image quality and the dynamic range on that thing was amazing. Only problem was it's twenty pounds and was a to hike up a mountain, and so the uh, the GH four is a lot more compact. So I've been using that. It's four K. The lenses are a lot smaller. The batteries are like twenty times smaller and lighter than the old batteries. And so I can go uh, further, lighter, and longer than with the old camera. So, um, yeah, pretty happy with it. I got wireless microphones for it. I have my old tripod, which I might sell because I don't have a heavy camera anymore. But, I mean, tripods in that range are usually about 2000 bucks, but they can hold a lot of weight. And they're super smooth. But I might sell that because I'm not using big cinema cameras anymore. Yeah, you know, and then, of course, the lights and stuff like that, which obviously can rack up a lot of money. But I still use the lights a lot because I do a lot of studio work still. So so who, who makes the GX4? Uh, the GH4, uh, Panasonic makes it. Yeah. They have the GH5. The, uh, the 5 is a little better. It does higher bit rate, uh, does slow motion better than the GH4. And then there's also the GH5S, which has lower resolution, which means larger pixels for the sensor size. And then with that, you get a uh, better low light performance, which the GH4 kind of lacks in. But um, I could go on and on about it. But essentially, it's just a mirrorless uh, micro four thirds camera. And they're super awesome. Nice. What are some things when you uh, when you started your YouTube channel? What are some things that you did to, to help get people's attention so you could stand out from the crowd? I think the biggest thing that I did was actually use a tripod. Because, like, you know, nine, ten years ago, everyone was hand-holding everything, and no one had good audio because they weren't micing people up, and they weren't lighting things, so it was kind of grainy. And um, so I think actually applying some of the fundamentals of filmmaking into the videos is what kind of set me apart. And once people started noticing, like, oh, you know, like, you know, these things are pretty well shot. This guy doesn't seem like a complete idiot. Um, They started subscribing and we just hit uh 120,000 subscribers earlier this week that is a ton of people that's crazy congratulations man thank you so it was it was video quality that you you really started with i think so i think it was image quality and um i guess like showing a little more in-depth and close-up images of parts that people actually wanted to see versus like the standard tabletop overview or whatever when you're doing gear reviews, how do you choose what you're going to review? Uh, a lot of times it's actually just stuff that I'm already going to buy. And so, you know, I'll, I'll just do a quick video on that. I've I found that if someone has like a new company and they want me to review something, a lot of times the product's not quite ready for me to do stuff yet. And so I'll test it out and let them know how I like it. And I'll leave it up to them whether or not they want me to do a review on it or or what have you. But nowadays, a lot of larger companies are starting to approach me to get some stuff done. Um, but I have to be very blunt with them that if I don't like it, I'm not going to not going to sugarcoat it. And so yeah. like BioLite uh, stoves, they're someone that reached out to me and their first iteration of the stove. I didn't bite on because it was kind of gimmicky and the technology just wasn't quite there yet. But the second version of the stove is actually pretty, pretty awesome. And I think you would enjoy it because you can adjust the heat and the flame and all that stuff. So you can actually uh, do a lot of fine cooking out in the wilderness. Uh, 
I'll be intrigued because I had a chance to play with the first one and the, the weight to performance ratio just didn't justify it for me. Yeah, the, the new one is good because it's got like 50% more output um, for the power. So you can actually charge stuff and they have a little light that sticks out and everything like that. So you can illuminate it. Second generation is a lot better. Yeah, if you want to check it out, let me know. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send it over to you for a bit. You know I love it. any excuse to burn stuff, and if I can cook too, then that's that's a bonus. Yeah, <laughs> rock and roll. And the only thing using my gear is using other people's gear. <laughs> right? So do people uh, approach you, or do you kind of contact them? Uh, you said BioLite reached out to you, but uh, is that kind of the typical way for the gear reviews that you're you're working on? Uh, actually, that's, it's it's kind of a mix, actually. Like a lot of people I meet at SHOT Show. And then, you know, we'll get to talking and then they usually send me something and then I'll go from there. And it's also a lot of uh, marketing agencies that represent several brands will contact me and then they will, you know, uh, see if I'm interested and see if it fits with the brand and all that stuff. Because it, it wouldn't make sense for me to uh, to review a vacuum cleaner because there's no carpet in my videos ever. So, um yeah, so we, we just kind of figure out what we're going to do and if it's actually going to work. And I think it's kind of overwhelming because you see all these, like, you know, dollar signs or free that, you know, you would like to use just for your personal stuff, but it just wouldn't work for your channel. And so, yeah, just got to be selective with it. Yeah, it's a combination of me contacting companies, me buying it for myself, or they just come and email me directly. Okay. So I know you do some, some firearm reviews. Is that getting difficult in the modern environment? What do you mean? <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, the firearms type content has pretty much all but died in the YouTube world, you know, for the most part. I mean, there's Grantham, he makes great videos, but for the most part, most of the YouTube channels have pretty much, you know, fizzled away and died off, or they're not, uh, they're not going at the full board they were several years ago. And it was kind of evident by going to SHOT Show this, uh, this last month and being in the media room and I'm looking around and I'm like, there's no one here aside from maybe like one or two people that are doing YouTube stuff. It's all writers and all that. So I was talking to John and he, he was saying that they're making it harder for people uh, that solely do YouTube to get media credentials. So that's not helping. So yeah, it's just uh, it's different. It's weird. And then also you have to be careful what you post, how you post it and the context of what you're posting because, yeah, YouTube's gotten more strict with their policies. So I've had a lot of stuff demonetized, and I've but I've only had one video deleted. So Deleted? Yeah. And I think it was a video on um, how I put together an AR-10. I'm sorry. I'm self-editing right now. I haven't gotten to an appropriate response yet. Yep. It's unfortunate, you know, but luckily there's companies like uh, Full30.com, which is a veteran-run media outlet. And so it's kind of like YouTube. You go there, you watch the videos, and all the advertisers are firearm or gear knife-related. So um, it's like a, basically like a, it's like the porn hub for guns. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Am I allowed to say that? You just did. We can't. Okay, cool. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's good. It gives us a lot of freedom and it's also good for the gun advertisers cuz you know, they don't have to pay quite as much as they would if they were on YouTube and yeah, it's just a good meeting place for a lot of different uh, creators. 
Are you doing more how-tos now, or is it uh, more gear review? Um, I've been doing a lot more how-tos recently. I've actually been doing a lot more videos in general recently. When I was in the Park Service, uh, National Park Service, I was on a hiatus because you can't really film in the national parks without permits and all that stuff. And obviously you can't just go out to the woods and shoot things. Yep. Um, so that, that put a big damper on it. You were the man. What did you do? Arrest you? Come on now. <laughs> what are you going to do? Call the cops? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, like it, it put a huge damper on the YouTube channel. Shortly after that, then I went to local law enforcement. And so I didn't want to get in trouble at all. So I, I just kind of like put pause mm-hmm. on the video making until I was done with probation. So not that I can't get fired. It's just a lot more difficult to fire me for something silly. Now they got to go through the union. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, you know, uh, they would never do this because uh, our admin's pretty cool, but, you know, it, it could get uh, public if they wanted to try and do something that infringes on my First Amendment rights. Yeah. Especially if they try to fire the only officer they have under five foot two. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I remember going into the jail and we were all in the report writing room and it was me and another Asian deputy. And I was like, huh, it's like the entire uh, minority population of the, of the sheriff's office is right here. That's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get nervous for a second? Yeah. I was like, is I planning something? Uh, sorry. I just edited a whole bunch of really funny stuff that can't make it to air. <laughs> I love it when Dan self edits. Makes my job so much easier. Yeah, if only it was on video, because you'd probably see him like smoking from the ears or something like that. Oh, I've, I've got like Tourette's twitch over here. I want to say it's so bad. It's like the, no, that's incredibly inappropriate, even for you. But it's going to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> the hamster spinning. Yeah. <laughs> well, is there anything new you're working on, Andy? Gear related? Any, what's coming up next? Uh, I have two, or technically I have three. Uh, but I have two knives that I just submitted for design um, that I submitted to one company right now, and they haven't gotten back to me yet, but I've done stuff with them in the past. Am I allowed to say that? Like, yeah. I just, I, I sent it to Tops. Um, and so one of them is... Uh, oh, now that you named them, I can't say rude <laughs> things about them. They was going to be like all on your side and screw them, and you're the man, and you don't have to put up with that. Right? Uh, now that you named them, I can't say that. So one of them is like a shortened version of the Tahoma field knife, which is pretty popular um, because there's a lot of people, including myself, like once you're wearing a load bearing vest, it's kind of hard to like store such a big knife on it. Um, so this one shortens it up by almost two and a half inches. And then the way I want to design the handle um, lightens it up a little bit as well. And then also puts the balance point at the right point by lightening up the handle. And then the other knife is actually a knife that Dan helped me do the prototypes on, or he did do the prototypes on, and that's a little companion knife. So working on those two right now, and hopefully we can get some headway on it here pretty soon because I'm kind of itching to get some more sharp and pokey things out there. Yeah, That's a healthy need. You You should feed that demon. Yes. Yeah. Never have enough knives. No. Yeah. And I'm starting to look at other toolboxes because I have like the Craftsman um, tool chest for my knives. I'm starting to look at another tool chest so I can store more. Man, I have got I, I've got the word out everywhere trying to find an old library ca- card catalog. <laughs> nice. 
I saw one at a friend's house and it is the most perfect storage. I should not have said this on a podcast. They're hard enough to find already. What's a library? Yeah. Well, and that's the beautiful thing is they're getting rid of the last libraries that actually had card catalogs. They're getting rid of them. But it's the perfect size drawer for uh, storing knives. Hmm. And then you've got a little label thing right there. You could write what's in there. Yep. Hmm. And all those little cubbies, it's perfect. Well, if you're in the South Carolina area and want to help Dan hook hook him up with a card catalog, uh, you can get him at uh, Dan at DogwoodCustomKnives.com. And I'm sure from surrounding states as well. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I would drive for that. D- Dan will travel. <laughs> uh, so, Andy, is there anything differently you would have done with the the channel? Kind of how it's grown and hmm. things like that, or that's a good question. You know, I, I I can't choose which videos get popular or become viral because there's there's some videos where I'll literally film, you know, for one video for like two months, um, not straight, but like you know, like actively filming, and then there's other videos like my most popular video where I literally film it in a basement and it takes me half an hour to film two hours to edit. Um, and that gets almost 10 million views. So it, uh, it kind of, it's kind of hard. Like, I guess if I was to do it all over again, I guess I would make the channel more specialized because I feel like the channels that have more of a niche do better because, you know, people that want to see gun stuff, they're going to see gun stuff on the gun channel. Versus mine, where it's like, well, someone might subscribe because of the knife stuff, but there's also gun stuff. There's also wilderness stuff that they might not care for. So if I was to go over again, I think I would specialize more in that way. You know, the subscriber to view ratio would be better. But I'm pretty happy because I can do whatever I want in my real life and film it. And it kind of just fits in the channel because I just film what I do. I kind of like the getting to know more about the people I'm watching, I, I don't always want to hear or hear or see just certain things. I kind of, when I watch YouTube, which I don't do that often, I, I actually, that's one of the things I really like about the podcast is getting to know about behind the scenes and uh, some other stuff about the, the knife makers and different people we interview. Right. So we talked a little bit about your knife designs. Um, how did you get started with designing knives? Um, so when I was a kid, I, uh, my dad wasn't around, but he kind of left behind a really sweet workshop. And so a lot of my childhood was kind of unsupervised by adults. And so I could build knives, um, like from the age of like middle school. And I learned how to use an angle grinder at a young age and found out that I could shape metal pretty effectively with one of those things. And so, um, I started like really young just because I couldn't afford you know, like tops knives or anything like that. So I, I kind of did it out of necessity because I was like, man, I really want like a really badass like tactical knife, but I can't fork out the 150 or 200 for it. So I kind of started with that. You know, I experimented with like, you know, different metals like saw blades or crowbars or whatever I can get my hands on. And uh, yeah, I just kind of started from there. And then uh took a break from that when I got into uh, like the high school age. And actually, I don't think you can get in trouble for it now because it happened so long ago. But I had a, a shop teacher that would let me bring in my knives and use the um like the forge and the kiln and all that stuff in order to temper all my knives. 
And so that was a pretty cool thing because he'd be like, all right, bring it, bring it into uh, the shop before anyone else gets here and then we'll do it. And then I'll just put it in my office and you'll pick it up after everyone leaves. And I'm like, sick, solid. No, I just checked statute of limitations. You're screwed, man. You should not have said that. I'm not at fault. He is. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I, I think we should be encouraging the, our younger generation to use knives and, not be afraid of them. I'm only 34, almost 35. And I work with some uh, people right out of college. And uh, it's just amazing how, how different their, their whole upbringing is. And especially growing up in the cities and stuff, I think we need to try to destigmatize the, like not every knife is a weapon. They're, they're useful tools and stuff. And now that they spend a lot more time around me, they see like how useful having knives is for opening boxes and cutting some ties and things like that. Yeah. It's crazy. Like in my profession, I've, you know, cause a lot of guys were all their gear um, visible. And I was looking at one of my partner's uh, uniform and I was like, bro, where's your knife? And he's like, I don't have one. And I'm like, wait, like as a choice. And he's like, you know, never needed one. And I was like, if I can, if I give you a knife, will you strap it on your, your vest? And he was like, oh uh, yeah, I think so. So like the next day, <laughs> I, next day I brought him uh, a, a folding knife and then a fixed blade knife, brand new. And I was like, strap it on right now. And so now I see him using it all the time. So, um, and just like that, he became a man. Yeah. It was, it's crazy. And you know, I love him to death, but I'm like, you know, first off that stuff should be at least issued to us you know, something basic. Um, and then second off, you know, like, I love the guy, but he's a Marine. Like you should be stabbing all the time. Uh, so it's just, you know, things come and go and the way you look at things are always going to be a little bit different, but yeah, everyone should have a knife, especially in my line of work. So mm. yeah, a lot of people in my agency know that I'm a knife guy now, like people that I don't even really talk to. They're like, Oh, how many knives you carrying? And I'm like six. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, sweet. Why are you asking? <laughs> yeah, it's almost a competition. I usually tell people it's not how, or if I have a knife on me, it's how many I have on me. Yeah. So, so what were some of your influences when you started designing? Uh, well, where'd your inspiration come from? Influence? What? Well, or inspiration? Either one. Well, I, I kind of wanted to design a knife that I would never get buyer's remorse from buying. You know, because it's it's always one of those things where you know you fork over over a hundred bucks for a knife. And then you find out that, you know, this doesn't work quite well, or this is a little bit flimsy or this needs to be reinforced. And so I wanted to build knives that, you know, someone could buy and then not regret, uh, regret the decision. And so, um, kind of started from there. Um, but like the hard use knives, I don't want to sound like a cliche, but like watching the Rambo movies when I was a kid or the hunted, was like always super cool. Mm-hmm. I guess watching The Hunted was the first time where it actually dawned on me that, you know, like, hold on a second, Wait, you can make a knife. Like, it doesn't come from a factory. The Hunted, you know, so uh, I was like, Filet blade on one side, saw on the other. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. All right. And if I could get a Beck tracker, uh, that would be freaking amazing. But there's a waiting line. So I don't like waiting. Um, <laughs> I actually, I got a chance to meet him on one of, uh, Kevin Estella's trips. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's known for that big tracker, but his little knives, I actually much prefer. He makes some phenomenal little, like three and a half inch general purpose blades. 
that are absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I've seen some of his tactical knives, and they look pretty rad. Um, and he, uh, it was a really great conversation with him because he uses a grinder in some really unique ways that I hadn't really thought of. It came from doing the tracker to get some of those odd angles. He really, really gave me a new perspective on the way to use some gr- the grinder. Awesome. You'll have to show me some of that because I'm still learning all that stuff as I go. Yeah. Sounds like Dan needs to take some video while he's uh, at the grinder at some point. Um, I mean, it's, it's not like you don't have a video camera that fits into your pocket. You know, give me a couple of weeks, maybe a month to get my swing back, and then maybe I'll let some, some video in front of the grinder out. You don't actually have to be grinding. You just talk about how you hold it and move it along there. Oh, that I can totally do right now. I mean, as long as I don't pull a straight line, we're good to go. Hypothetically, this is exactly how you do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Those that can't do teach, and those who can't teach coach—is that wasn't that how it goes? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> wow. I'm in awe right now. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, uh, back on topic. How do you how do you make some of your knives stand out? Do you use uh, different handle materials. Any any custom touches? Um, I don't know. Do my knives stand out, Dan? Um, I live under a rock, so I don't know if like there's other people mimicking. Uh, the field knife has got a really distinct shape to it. Um, I can't say it stands out because it's in like that desert tan and it really blends into everything. Yeah, but the shape is very distinctive. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just like stuff that works, and I don't try and flare anything out uh, i'm definitely more of like a a utility minded person so if it the way i see it like if it's stupid but it works it's not stupid if that makes any sense and so there was a lot of people who were like oh this you know the spine uh the notch in the spine is gonna make the knife break and yada yada this and that and i'm like yeah uh maybe if you don't manufacture it right and i didn't have to worry about any of that working with tops knives you know just kind of thinking outside the box and you know i didn't really have traditional thought process when it came to design like i didn't come from a like a tactical knife background i didn't come from like a kitchen knife background i I kind of just started from whatever i wanted to do and um and i think working with tops knives before i became a designer for them kind of helped that a lot because they have a lot of non-conventional designs that uh you know i kind of pulled some influence from so you kind of just made the knife you wanted yeah, I mean, like I said, like I I wanted to build a knife that I wouldn't regret buying if I was, you know, buying it for myself, and so I think that's what made the TFK so popular. So, what's your uh, what's your thoughts on uh, blade thickness? That is, I mean, we could <laughs> you and me could butt heads on that like all day, right? Like for me, I think the length should dictate the thickness, and also your intended purpose, because as well as a one eighth inch thick blade slices and cuts um they just kind of get stuck in wood when you're trying to split and so it's kind of like a you know it's kind of like a big old dance um i don't think i would ever design anything with a quarter inch because i think that's just too heavy but for me like three sixteenths of an inch is pretty good um some of the thinner stock that you use i think for smaller knives i think would be excellent like uh on the prototype i think that's the perfect thickness for that so it's just uh i if you're intending on splitting you know, I think three sixteenths of an inch is as thick as I would go. Anything thicker, you're just kind of like trying to show off your dick. Anything 
anything thinner, if you're trying to split, it's going to get stuck. But also then you get, you know, efficiency and cut and reduced friction. So I don't know. It I We could go all day and it's just going to be dependent on what I'm designing the knife for, who I'm designing it for, what kind of steel I'm using, um, and then the skill of the sharpener too. So so really what you're saying is 330 seconds is is the optimal greatness is, is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, speaking of, uh, steel types, where's your head right now? Is there like, is there a go-to steel for you right now? Or is there kind of flirting with some of the new super steels? What's your, what's your thoughts on metallurgy right now? Uh, so that is a, that's a question for Dan Eastland. Cause I feel like you can geek out more on steels than I can. Um, I like, like personally, I like working with 1095 cause I can easily, um, heat treat one of those things in the backyard versus you know stainless steels or any of the more finicky steels and so you know i just kind of use what's tried and true you know 1095 works for me but i know it's not the best steel out there but you know you can you can throw a spark with it you know if you have a piece of chert which is nice and it takes a really good edge and it's something that you can sharpen in the jungle like what we did um which is sand versus you know needing to pull out some ceramic or, or diamond stones so yeah, I'm kind of a simpleton. Um, I also don't like, you know, I I want to be able to design knives that the everyday person can afford. And so once you start getting into some of the super steels, it just gets it gets expensive for people. And again, like you know, once you even if you have a super high functioning knife, if that knife costs four hundred dollars, then people you know may or may not get that sticker shock or buyers are morse down the road. So you know, keeping it at a decent price point and making it work really well. And then having a really good heat treat, regardless of the steel type, I think is the most important thing. Yeah, there are a lot of people that say, and I tend to agree with them, that heat treat is, it's at least as important, if not more important than your steel choice. I agree. I agree. You know, I've definitely had knives that, you know, were in like the $150 range and you stab something hard with it and then pop, all of a sudden there's a break, you know, right where the, you know, there's a bolt that goes through the handle. And so that's that's never something that I want to have someone experience. And that's why I chose tops for the uh, the Toma field knife, because that differential heat treat is the best in any production knife. Very cool. So what is your favorite or a couple of favorite production knives that you like? Uh, does it have to be currently in production? No. Hmm. No. That's a good question. Um, as far as like duty knives go, the Gerber Auto 06, I think it is. Uh, I've been I've been liking that a lot, and like it's a it's a hefty blade, so you can actually like chop something with it. There was a homeowner that bought a new house, and they were out in the backyard, and the previous owners left a whoa, 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 stop right there. ton of weed plants, and so they're like, uh, "We don't want it." Sure, they really did. Yeah, they're like, "We don't want it. Uh, we want you guys to get rid of it." And I'm like, "Are you sure?" And I got a yes from everyone there. And I'm like, okay. So we, I pulled up my knife. Right, we're going to burn these right now. <laughs> Pull out the knife. I chopped it up and, and tossed it in the back of my, uh, my patrol car, which looked hilarious, by the way. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, you can do that. I mean, you know, and that knife too, because it's an automatic, it's safer to deploy and put back in your pocket than, say, a fixed blade where you have to find the sheath. Is that a double action or? A uh, single action. A single action? Okay. Yeah. But um, it's unfortunate, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad I had the right tool for it. Um, this one guy took his life and hung himself in a tree. 
And so because I was a little sky, I was like, all right, I'll go up. So climbed up the tree and then it was a safe way for me to deploy a knife, cut him down and then um, cut the rest of the rope down for evidence. So, you know, people always are always like, well, you know, automatic knives are for criminals or this and that or for guys that are like high speed. It's like, no, it's a safety thing. Because with that, I can press the button, rake the spine of the knife on my leg, and then put it right in my pocket, all while not having to look at it. It's for guys that want to open their knives one-handed. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, there's that, you know, there's that argument, well, a fixed blade does the same thing. It was like, well, it's true. But if you're hanging on a tree, finding that sheath is a little bit difficult with one hand. So yeah, for, for like current production, that would be mine. And then I think... The Benchmade Model 42, that that butterfly knife, I wish they would bring that thing back because that thing is so iconic mm-hmm. and it looks so good and the balance is great and it kind of started a revolution uh, bringing butterfly knives and Bali selling to the United States. If they did like an anniversary model for that, I think I think it'd do really well. Yeah, I know there's a, there's a ton of those balisongs and stuff that you see at Blade Show, especially at Blade Show East. They have the whole balisong competition and everything. Yeah, they had one uh, this last year at Blade Show West, and I was, yeah. I, was, I was surprised how many people got into it. Have you ever watched, like, a group of hacky sackers? Or ha- I don't know what you call them. Are they hackers mm-hmm. S- or sackers? Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they like, do cool shit, and I'm like, whoa, that's cool. I'm not nearly that skilled, but it's cool watching you guys do it. And it's the same thing, yeah. Yeah, usually the there's, like, a kind of offshoot hallway of the, the pit at Blade Show East, and they usually fill that little thing and it's just amazing to see like uh 10 year old to like probably mid 20s maybe uh just uh doing all these crazy tricks and they're throwing like seriously sharp knives like all around and everything it's uh out of my comfort zone but i'm i'm glad that they mm-hmm. they enjoy doing it if i remember correctly the girl that won the competition at blade show west the whole time had a hoodie up, pulled down low over her eyes, and it was almost a, uh, okay, are they going to cut themselves now? <laughs> All right, it's a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those, I think, you know, her demeanor and her outfit kind of also added to it because, you know, if, if they were dressed like a ninja or something like that, it'd be totally different, but she was like just nonchalantly just flipping the shit. I'm like, oh, <laughs> F&A, that's cool. So what's one of your, your favorite or a couple of favorite of your the custom knives that people make? Uh, not to blow smoke up your booty, but uh, the piranha knife that Dan Eastland made is pretty freaking sweet. Um, it was the jungle trip that it was your first outing with it, right? Uh, yeah. 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 And he made the handle out of black palm, which we got from the jungle. Was it from your broken bow? Yeah, it was from my uh, my bow that I broke. Yeah, I broke mine too, so don't feel bad about it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that knife is just so beautifully done. And the leather sheath that went with it. I mean, not only did all the lines like fit perfectly from like the little finger choil there that uh, sweeps with the, the sheath, but then um, all the tooling with my Interbark logo on it. I mean, it's just so well done. And then the thing's freaking sharp. Um, I don't have any video of it, but I've used it to dress roadside deer. Because that's the that's the beauty of being a cop is that you know where all the uh, freshly killed deer are, and so I got some <laughs> got some goodies with that. And nobody thinks you're an axe murderer when you hack something up on the side of the road and throw it in your trunk. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so <laughs> fun story. Um, there was this deer that was hit about five miles from my house, 
And it was a cold night. So I was like, all right, not too worried about it. I'll get it here in a bit. And so I had a then subscriber and he ended up moving with me because we ended up becoming really good friends. Um, he was living at my house. Man, you go to Mario to get subscribers, don't you? Right. Uh, so I, I knock on his door. I'm like, hey, um, I need your help with something. And he's like, does it require any plastic sheets and a shovel? And I'm like, actually, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so he was like, I'm never making that joke with you over again. But yeah, it, uh, yeah, we, you know, we got that. And then I spent the, uh, the morning cutting it up. So, um, yeah, I, I really love your knives. And actually there's not too many other custom knife makers that, um, that I actually get stuff from. It's just, you know, they're either like too futuristic or too this and that, or, you know, they, they don't make them out of materials that I feel would be durable enough for me to like use it. Cause I don't have things that hang out in the safe. If I'm going to have it, I'm going to use it. And if it breaks, then I probably didn't want it in the first place. So yeah, Dan stuff. Um, I feel comfortable enough using it. The materials are durable enough that, um, they're going to withstand, you know, a few rounds with Andy Tran. So, um, yeah. Does that answer that question? I think so. It does. I think I went on, I think I went on a tangent. Anyway, dead deers are good. Dan's knives. Great. And I have a full freezer. Uh, I'm sorry. Somebody's changing the next question I was going to ask you. No, I was just telling you to ask the question. Oh, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. You know, I should put my glasses on. <laughs> um, <laughs> your, your bifocals? Yeah. Hey, man, you laugh. Um, I guess it was about a year ago, man. My plunge lines went to hell. Like, I could not get... I could not... I, I, it was driving me nuts. Like, man, I readjusted my equipment. I went back to beginning techniques. My plunge lines were all over the freaking place. And Beth noticed me trying to look at my phone and I was moving it in and out. <laughs> When's the last time you got your eyes checked? Sure enough, man, I got bifocals. And the next day, my grinds came right back. <laughs> That's awesome. It's amazing what can happen when you actually are seeing what you're doing. Yeah, a crazy concept. I mean, I mean, I aged like 15 years. I don't know who that guy in the mirror is, but he's old. <laughs> but <laughs> why why wouldn't you spend like an hour of your day to instantly improve your eyesight? <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Is there a handle material you like to use? Um, I like I said, I'm I'm a utility guy, so um, the G10s and the micartas for me are good. Um, I prefer the canvas just because it's a little more coarse, and then you know if it gets polished with use, then you just hit it with like 60 grit or something like that to bring it back. So yeah, the micartas and the G10s are my favorite. Any any colors you like more than others, or uh, any earth tony colors? So all the greens, the tans, browns. Black is okay, but it you know it's kind of kind of boring. I'd rather use an earth tone. Cool. I really like the the bias cut stuff that's like inch and a half thick, so all the layers are perpendicular to the blade. Ooh, that's cool. I've had people argue with me that like that's a wood handle. I'm like, uh, no, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> look, that that's that's definitely wood. And I'm like, I made this knife. I I'm pretty sure I know if it's wood or not. He's like, no, you didn't. And I'm like, no, mofo. <laughs> I think I did. 
<laughs> All right, I'll tell you what, you're right. It's wood, and there's a sixty dollar upcharge for that. Yeah, it's, it's specially stabilized. Yeah, and uh, it's it's endangered species too. So mm-hmm. don't show any of your friends. Yeah, thanks for reminding. Me. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I I got a lot of questions about the uh, Starry Night handle material that Dan made. Are you still making that stuff? Yeah, actually, full disclosure, um, Shade Tree makes that. Okay. It was the, I provide the glow in the dark material and can't remember who had the idea. We, he and I were working together on something and we came up with the, the starry night concept. Okay. How much would it cost for you to make uh, a handle for a TFK hypothetically? Um, it depends on who I'm making it for. Okay. For not me, but for someone that, you know, um, is like a follower of the channel. Cause I'm, I'm getting a lot of questions. Yeah, I actually think I've got some at the shop. I I can hook you up. Okay, rock and roll. I mean, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to come to South Carolina and pick it up, but I'll do it for you. Okay, do I have to do the PP touches too, or just the money exchange? <laughs> just the tip. Okay, just the tip. I could I could do that. <laughs> oh man, hey, we're gonna slide by the uh, sensors with uh, the language. <laughs> sure. I mean, the content might be foul, but the language is still good. Yeah. Maybe use words like potty. <laughs> so uh, you've got you've worked with some production companies. How did you how did you connect with production companies once you knew your design was right? Uh, so different companies are known for different things. Um, some are known for folders. Some are known for fixed blades. Some are known for like you know hard use tactical. And so you know you can kind of go off that. Um, and I can only speak to working with tops so far. I'm starting to talk to a couple of the companies for some other things, but, you know, working with tops on a lot of reviews for my channel kind of got me like a a rapport with them. And then, you know, taking the, the time and effort to do my own prototyping, I think helped a lot. And it was just, just shy of a year it took from prototyping to the, excuse me, the final production prototype, which is, I think freaking really fast for basically semi-custom knives. Um, but, uh, you know, you just look at a company and are like, well, do their, do their values line up with yours? And if it's yes, then keep on going. And is there manufacturing of Tapar? Well, if it, they should be. And then, you know, go to the next step. And then, you know, obviously, do you have a good working relationship? And then you just kind of check all these boxes and eventually you'll find a company that works just right. And for me, working with Tops, I think, was the best choice for me. Their values were there. Their manufacturing's there. Um, obviously, it's all made in the U.S., so I was able to actually visit their factory. And so all these things kind of land up in place. And it's kind of one of those things where it just kind of seems like a match made in heaven, for lack of a uh, better term, and trying not to sound corny. But, uh, but yeah, just, everything just worked. No, so, I mean, did you have to stalk them, email bomb them, cut off your ear and mail it to them? Like, how did you, how did you get them to return your emails? Well, so I think, I think I was talking to Leo first because Leo was not CEO yet. He was a right-hand man. And so I think I was talking to Leo and Craig first um, just to do like, you know, reviews and stuff like that. And Mike Fuller was CC'd in a lot of these emails. So Mike Fuller already knew me. And then I did a video on YouTube uh, testing my prototype. And I think I had like a big piece of cedar and I was chopping through it. And then uh, I sent that to directly to Mike um, and Leo. And I was like, hey, I have this design. Um, what do you guys think? 
And so it wasn't, it couldn't have been more than an hour later that I got the email saying that they wanted to do it. And so, yeah. And, and then, uh, it just so happened that I was going to be in the area for the rabbit stick, uh, primitive skills gathering. And that's probably 45 minutes North of Idaho falls. And so, you know, I was there like a month or two later and that's when I actually finally met them, you know, face to face in person. Um, we shook on it, you know, they just wanted to make sure that I wasn't junked out or something like that and make sure I was a good person. Um, and then from there it was just, uh, getting to business and working on prototypes and measurements and all that stuff. So yeah, um, it, at, I make it seem a lot more simple than it was, but there was a lot of work that went into building that relationship before I submitted the, uh, the prototype. Short version is you developed a relationship before you started trying to, to pitch a knife. Yeah. And and they get emails every day of people, um, you know, diehard Tops and Ice fans, but they'll, you know, have a, a Photoshop rendering of like a, a mutation of a current design or something like that. And while I'm sure it's appreciated that they have a, such a hardcore fan base, you know, you, you got to put in the time, you got to put in the effort and make sure that these concepts on paper work in real life. Because we all know that you know, things might not work quite as well on paper as they do or in real life as they do on paper. Sure. So have an actual working prototype that you can demonstrate functionality with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Before you, before you start trying to, to get somebody's attention. Yeah. And it, it takes a huge amount of effort for a company of that size to do prototyping because they have to take someone off the floor. You know, I think it's Leo that's that's doing a lot of like the one-off stuff now, but they have to, you know, cut it out, do all the grinding and all that stuff. And this is all by hand, because once they do it in, in production, that's all CNC work. Really? Grinding by hand? That's a strange concept. I've Weird. I've heard of that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it takes a long time. And then obviously there's a shipping back and forth. So you got, you know, a few days there, a few days back. Um, so if you could do all that stuff by yourself, and figure out if your design is um, part of my French mm. or not, then it saves a lot of time. And it also tells the company that, you know, you're actually willing to go the extra step. It, it shows that you're committed and it's something that they can actually test. Yeah, absolutely. What are some lessons you learned over the, these last couple of knives that you've designed? Um, if you could go back to past Andy and, and slap him in the side of the face and go, hey, mm. What what would be the thing you told him? Well, I don't know if there's much I would do. Um, I think for the TFK, I would have worked on the sheath a little bit more instead of using their standard ballistic nylon. I think I would have um, would have done some PP touches for a really good Kydex because that's the biggest complaint. Hey, who did the Kydex that I have? Uh, the one you have. I'm not going to speak his name because he's burned a lot of people. So I, I worked with the Kydex guy here um, south of my location. And, you know, he, he was great at first. And then his, you know, production lead times, you know, went from like two weeks to a month, two months to three months. Then I was like, all right, man, uh, what's going on? And I found out that he was selling uh, TFK pattern sheaths like behind my back. You know, because I was selling his sheets through my website and promoting it through my channel. Wow. Yeah. And then, um, so yeah. I, I severed ties with that. And every so often, people ask me, you know, where I would go for a Kydex sheath. And so there's there's tons of really good guys that have a good reputation and a good track record 
So I, I recommend it to them. And then, you know, I also get emails, but like, Hey, how do I contact this guy? Cause I sent him money, you know, six months ago and I have nothing to show for it. And so I'm like, ah, oh, this sucks. Um, so yeah, I, I would work on the sheath for the TFK and then for the ice dagger, I would have made it more public when I was doing the prototyping because, uh, I was accused of stealing a design, uh, when I released it officially. And it turns out that my design came out or the, the prototype was being worked on about a year before they released any word of theirs. And the company had a um, Department of Defense contract with the Australian Army to do a, a similar knife, you know, like a reinforced tip, a dagger with a ring. And so they obviously accused me of stealing the design. I'm like, I've never even heard of you, first off. Second off, you know, how dare you, you know, post stuff about me on a forum um, without talking to me first. It turns out you stole my design. We need to have a new conversation. Yeah, I, I wanted to go that way, but I'm like, just let's just shake hands and just call it a day. You know, like stop wasting each other's time. God, you're such a nice guy. Uh, I'm Asian. I'm passive. Uh, but if you mess with me, I'm going to mess with you back. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the, the letting people know about prototypes is always such a, a dicey thing. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, to your point, you want to get that timestamp. On the other hand, you don't want to leak all your best ideas until you've got them worked out. Exactly. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. And I wouldn't know the first thing about trademarking or, or patenting any features or anything like that. So, um, Yeah, which in the knife industry, it's, it's nearly impossible to uh, patent. Yeah. I mean, the, there's just, since prehistoric man first broke off the sharp chip of, of chert, shapes it's almost impossible to demonstrate that your shape is truly unique exactly you know and uh like an uh, example like work tough here has a knife very similar to the tfk in both like the color choice and then the general blade shape and you know uh john from the wingman 115 channel uh one of my best friends did a review on it and people were um bashing on the knife for it being so similar to mine and i'm like no, it's not. And first off, John would never uh, like promote any knife that was a direct competition of mine. So it, it's just you know one of those things. You know, it's you just hope that you're a little bit more popular and can get it out a little bit faster, and um, people follow you a little bit more than the next guy, essentially. And it's the balance because it's really important for us in the industry, and even more important for those that are out buying to kind of self-police because since you can't patent a design, like if there's an actual ripoff, really we as an industry just have to self-police, but you want to walk that fine line in your case of, no, that's similar, but it's not a ripoff. That's a legitimate design. Mm -hmm. I mean, by mine, but don't be upset with them. Yeah. And that's a, a really delicate line to walk. Yeah. And so far, I haven't found the TFK on Wish or anything like that. Uh, but I did I did find, I think one guy in Pakistan makes like a, a Damascus TFK. And it's like exactly the same. So um, unfortunately, they're out of country. So it's kind of hard to do anything. You know, you haven't really made it until somebody rips off your stuff. I know. It's kind of flattering, actually. Yeah. I, heard, I was listening to a podcast. There was a knife maker that makes folders. And he was said he actually collects... Uh, a lot of the, the like, uh, 
rip off versions of his knife and he'll actually take them apart and was like, huh, like that's pretty ingenious how to make this like a lot cheaper and still actually function. Mm-hmm. Ha ha. Irony of ironies. <laughs> I'm going to do the skull for me. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how many, uh, trackers Tom Brown has. Yeah. <laughs> one of the, one of the other things with the, with like doing the prototype stuff, it's some of the things I've been leery about is I'll be working on design or somebody will ask me to make something one off. And then, uh, they'll like see it in the background of one of the pictures and they're like, Hey, can you make me one of those? And I'm like, well, I'm really hating making this one. So I don't really want to make another one. <laughs> hey man, that's when price point comes in. Yes. For eight, nine, one thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Ethan Becker's actually got a fascinating collection of, uh, of knockoffs from his knives. The, the Becker stuff you're talking about? Man. Yeah. Hmm. Why would someone like knock off his knives? Because they're already so darn affordable. I, you know, you know? He's got some, um, and like one, the packaging has a picture of him on it. Like it's, That's awesome. It's a picture of him on the packaging, and he saw it somewhere, and he's like, I don't remember okaying that. And he bought it just out of curiosity, and he, he looked at the stamp. He's like, no, this is definitely nobody I've licensed. Yeah, but it, it, it'd be awesome if they like if they misspelled his name a little bit, so it wouldn't be like a copyright thing. Ethan <laughs> Backer, just like his knife, it's just got a, an out of country stamp on it. Yeah, I I was in a flea market one time and I saw a set of uh, open in wrenches. Oh, like these look really nice, and I looked at it and it was like. Uh, it had the oval and everything just like Craftsman did, but they just removed the C. It was a Raftsman uh, <laughs> brand. Uh, it was pretty cool. They probably don't have the lifetime guarantee. Neither <laughs> <I mean, laughs> does Craftsman now, I don't think. I know. That broke my heart. Sears is just about out. Yeah. That was a man. The Sears catalog used to be a significant part of my childhood around Christmas time. Yeah. Right. Maybe I just explained how freaking old I am, but. It, it, they, they used to sell like straight up buildings, like in pieces, and then you put it together on site. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Sears, Sears almost put uh, Cummins diesel engines out of business. Uh, they uh, they bought a whole bunch of engines and they uh, offered a ninety day if you don't like it money one hundred percent money back guarantee. And uh, a lot of farmers bought it and harvested all their crops and stuff with it. Used them like wore those engines out. And get and uh, turned it in after the ninety days and got their money back. And Sears was like, uh, "You got to eat this." They didn't like it, <laughs> <laughs> so pretty crazy. So, uh, Andy, what drew you toward being in law enforcement? I know you said you worked some in the you said Rangers for the the Forestry Service and stuff, or uh, yeah, the National Park Service. Oh, National Park Patrol. Yeah. So there's there's two types of Rangers. There's the Interp Rangers. Um, and they, they're basically like tour guides and they do non law enforcement stuff. And then there's the law enforcement rangers and we're, um, fully qualified to, you know, uh, enforce the laws of the land, uh, carry guns, arrest people, that sort of thing. Um, did you get a meth bust when you were, uh, yeah. So liquid methamphetamine, and then we got a whole bunch of marijuana on the border. And so um, definitely surpassed like my goal because I was like, oh, I want to get 50 pounds of marijuana. And then, you know, they were, they were like, 
bless your heart. They're like, yeah, you're either going to find little, like an ounce of weed, you know, for personal use, or you're going to find a truckload. And uh, we ended up finding two different things. We found like over 350 pounds of marijuana. Didn't find, but we uh, we tracked it. Um, It was attached to uh, a whole bunch of people's backs. And then uh, found some liquid methamphetamine. And the thing about liquid methamphetamine is that, you know, they liquefy it so that they can transport it easily. And I guess the the most popular way, and I think the one that's most genius is to liquefy it and then put it into a uh, diesel vehicle in the tank because the diesel will sink to the bottom. The liquid methamphetamine would go on the top. And as long as you only drove a few miles uh, past the border, then you could still operate the vehicle just fine as if it was a normal vehicle. And then you stop it, then tow it the rest of the way. And so um, there's a lot of cool stuff like that. Um, but I got into law enforcement because, uh, like, uh, my best friend from middle school, high school, uh, he took his own life. And then I was like, this sucks. And I was kind of floating around trying to figure out, like, you know, like what kind of legacy I wanted to do. Because at the time I was just doing a bunch of video work. And I was like, well, as cool as this is, you know, it's not really like helping anyone. And I saw a lot of stuff that like in the world and I was like, well, if I'm not part of the solution, I'm kind of part of the problem. So eventually I got into the park service and then, um, cause the wife didn't want me to go into to normal law enforcement, quote unquote normal. Uh, but after doing all like the drug interdiction and human trafficking stuff, she was like, uh, no, I think I'm okay. Cause at the, at the end of the day, you're already doing it. Regular law enforcement is safer than park law enforcement. <laughs> uh, so then I, I, you know, went into um, academy again. So I had to go to a, through a federal academy, then a state academy, and then now I'm now I'm a sheriff's deputy. So um, there's definitely more action. I think I arrested more people in one day um, as a deputy than I did my entire you know two seasons as a as a ranger. Um, you don't get quite as nice as sunsets. You get a lot of a lot more unsavory people, but um, no, it's a it's a good time. And uh, you know, it, it's crazy. Like you can go from pointing a gun and almost killing someone one second, and then like a minute later, you know, after they're in handcuffs and the scene's safe, you're like talking to them like a normal person, be like, "Hey, man, like, what's actually going on right now? How can I help you?" And there's not many occupations where you can go from those two extremes within. <laughs> within a few minutes. So yeah, it's a, it's a fun job and you can see right away that it's uh, the work you're actually doing is affecting people's lives in a positive way or in a, or in a negative way if they want to be like that. But, um, you know, people that want help and want resources and they want to get better. Um, I'm more than willing to help, you know, I've definitely gone above and beyond for people that show that they actually needed and wanted some help. But, um, yeah, does that answer the question? I like law enforcement because it helps people. And I know that's, I know that's the blanket statement, but if it wasn't for law enforcement being in my life, I would be a statistic. You know, my dad was incarcerated. My sister had her issues and every, every statistic said that I should have been, but I had turned out being okay. So you're paying it forward. Yeah. So with the, the parks department, so like, uh, on, I think it was history channel. They had a, uh, the true legend of Mick Dodge guy that was like living in the, the Olympic mountains. Mm. Um, how does, how does stuff like that work? Like I, I've heard of like different people like living in the, the national forest and stuff. This, that can't, or that's not 
legal or is it just because they don't they haven't found their base operations or something or yeah so it's illegal because there's um only a certain number of days you're allowed to be in there and that's just to protect the environment because once people start making um like a homestead there because you know there's no way to take out you know human waste or uh or rubbish or anything like that you really start impacting the environment and so not only are they uh screwing up the environment that way but you know they're also like you know usually start stealing stuff from camps or nearby homes or things like that so it it's just a big big cluster um but yeah i mean it wouldn't surprise me right now if you told me that there were you know two or three people living in mount rainier national park that no one knew about that would not surprise me one bit yeah cuz that's just a lot of square miles with very few people patrolling it yeah, I mean, I used to, like in the middle of the night, I would uh, sit in a giant meadow and just wait for headlights. You see headlights, you walk towards headlights. And so you can find people that way. You know, there's there's not much other stuff you can do because we don't have helicopter patrols or anything like that. So for our listeners that are squatting on national parks, don't drive at night. And if you do, don't use your headlights. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Go Go nods only. Yeah. Which is the way everyone should drive, really. Oh, man. So you've been working on your off-grid cabin. Yep. The wife and I, we started an off-grid cabin project. Um, it was something that we've been thinking about doing for a long time. And so we saved up the money and kind of were passively looking at different properties in order to, uh, you know, because we didn't want to be forced to, like, just go out and buy a property. Like, we wanted to find the right one at the right time with no pressure. And it didn't actually take us very long to find this one. And we contacted our real estate agent that helped us uh, get the house that we live in. And, you know, three weeks later, we owned it. Wow. That's cool. Now, how did, what, what were some of the criteria? What were some of the things you were looking for for your project? Uh, we needed to have a view. So that was one of the main things. I mean, location, 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 right? Uh, and part of that was also we wanted to be butted up against national forest land so that there was like an extended range for hunting out the uh, so you, out the back door. So you could go squat on national forest. Exactly. Yeah. So we got we got twenty acres, and on three sides of it is national forest land, and I think there's over two thousand acres. So um, there's definitely some room to stretch your legs, um, and we wanted privacy. And then, as an added bonus, we actually get four G LTE um, because we're on the correct side of the ridge, so we can watch Netflix and all that stuff but we're also completely off grid. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the the 5G uh wireless stuff is going to be pretty amazing when all that rolls out. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. We're we're, you know, we can keep up with the you know, all the TV shows and also call people and once we get the internet uh not the internet but the uh electricity up, you know, I can print fax do all that stuff from the cabin. So it's going to be crazy. What's your what's your overall concept for the cabin? Um, overall concept is we we don't want to rely on fossil fuels just because uh, long term, if the grid goes down, you know, getting liquid um, liquid propane or all that stuff is going to be difficult. Generators aren't going to be running anymore because there's not going to be any petrol. So we wanted to go as electric as possible, and then also using the solid fuel in the trees and all that stuff that are around it. So we found a wood stove that we restored and that provides us heat and also a kicking surface and then we're going to go electric for an an induction um 
cooktop so that we can heat cast iron and all that stuff and do all the uh the necessary cooking that way um and then we'll have sort of an outdoor grill and everything else for when we don't want to heat the uh the cabin up with the wood stove so we'll, we'll have a we'll have a few different ways to cook and prepare and heat and all that stuff um but we'll have we'll have about 1800 watts of solar panels with lithium batteries um because lithium batteries just last a little bit longer than the normal batteries and uh yeah that's kind of it well and they're lower maintenance too yeah and you can store them inside you don't have to vent the gases out for the hydrogen or anything uh are the salt water salt water batteries um I know the original company went out of business. Are they still still feasible, or is that a... They're still feasible. There's a company called, I think, Edison Battery, which are kind of similar. It uses a different chemistry, um, and they're supposed to be along the same lines as the saltwater batteries, but I think for the most part, you can only get the saltwater batteries in Europe because Europe has like a much larger solar market than the U.S. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping that comes over here because that would be awesome. But the power density of the, the saltwater stuff um, is just not nearly as dense as lithium. Okay. So you're taking up a lot of floor space and got to reinforce foundations and stuff like that. Yeah. I didn't realize they were that massive. Yeah, they're pretty big. I mean, you're you're for like a the same size that we're looking at for lithium. It would probably be the size of a, a full-size refrigerator-freezer combo. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they're pretty big. But there there's no toxic elements there, so... Um, yeah, at the end of the day, you just pour the salt water out. Yep. So, and you're going to do, you're going to use like an electric Insta-Hot for hot water or heat on the stove? So we have the wood stove, so we'll probably keep, you know, hot water on the wood stove in the winter. And then we have a five-gallon industrial water tank. Yeah. And so uh, we'll have a you know, that as like the water heater. And then to get pressure into the uh, plumbing system, we're going to use an RV water pump so that when the pressure drops on the faucet side, it automatically kicks on and then starts uh, producing pressure that way. And so um, we're, we're sort of doing a meld of like off-grid, but also RV technology yeah. so that we can stay like, you know, off-grid as much as possible because we don't even have a well out there. We're, we're just collecting rainwater you, and just one half of the roof, one half of the roof gets us like 4,000 gallons a year. So if we wanted to harvest off the other half, then we have 8,000 gallons. And that's quite a bit if you're conservative. Yeah. And the, the RV and the yacht industry have got, done so much for low demand, high performance when it comes to, to water, heat, galley situations. Right. Yeah. And, and it's getting cheaper, too. Um, and the technology is not crazy. It's just, you know, better, like tighter tolerances and better quality control. And yeah, so well, there's always the old school method of use your water tank and put a copper line high, run it in a coil and then run it low, mm -hmm. run the coil through a fire or, you know, build your fire around it or around your, um, um, wood burning stove. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we thought about that. Um, uh, camp Europe and Rainier, they have a, uh, this really cool ice melting system and they use uh, antifreeze to run through it so it doesn't freeze and expand and destroy the pumps. But it's solar powered and they have a solar collector uphill. And so when the sun's running, it pumps through the solar collector and heats everything up 
And then um, when the sun goes down, everything shuts off and it's no longer circulating. But it produces, it regularly produces water that's like 100 degrees coming out. So you can melt the melt enough snow to power the entire camp up there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So what's your what's your long term goal with the off grid cabin? Are you planning on living out there full time or? Uh, we'll probably because it's not in the county that we work in. Um, we'll probably use it as basically uh, live there half the time. You know, during uh during my weekends, which are either three days or four days long. And so we'll stay there and kind of get away from it all out there and also offer it to, you know, friends and family that just need a little bit of a break. So um, we'll get all the creature comforts, like the running water, the electric and all that stuff, um, get a modern day composting toilet. So that's a little more used, uh, a little more close to what people are used to. And um, yeah, it'll just be like a little home away from home. Um, we don't plan on living out there full time anytime soon, but definitely it would be an awesome like hunting retreat or little little place to get away from it all. Mm-hmm. A fun escape. Yeah, yeah. So it's there's a lot of work to be done, and um, you know I'm learning a lot more about chainsaw work as we go. <laughs> yeah, home ownership in general and cabins especially give you you always will have something to do on the weekends. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, if you're cutting a few trees down and moving and bucking up wood, you know, you have, you don't have to do leg day for like the next week. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> I see you multitasking. Yeah. So if somebody wants to find, uh, find your knives, where do they go? Oh, um, I mean, you can find the TFK just about anywhere. Um, I found out not too long ago that it's actually at Cabela's. And so you can find it at Cabela's. You can find it obviously at topsknives.com. Um, the way to, uh, the best way to buy it is if you go to www.inner-bark.com. Um, you can buy it directly from me. And then also you have the option to uh, get rid of the Velcro on the knife and then get some um, high quality brass snaps. Um, Cause that's the, that's the weak point of the sheath really. And, um, and you get to support the designer. Yep, and my it's me that puts the brass snaps on. It's not some other person. So um, if you're lucky, you might even get a stray dog hair from one of the dogs on there. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's the, those are the best places. Um, obviously, you can also find the the ice dagger there as well. Um, the ice dagger doesn't sell quite as well because it's geared more towards law enforcement and military. And um, while I would like everyone to be able to carry a, a, a cool self-defense knife like that, it's just not legal for everyone to carry, unfortunately. So um, not legal yet, yeah. but knife rights is on it. Oh, yeah. And they're doing some amazing work. Like I'm getting emails constantly about, you know, bans getting repealed and everything like that. So I'm like, yes, amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doug does a great job over there. Yeah. Well, Doug and his crew. Yeah. Um, so if I have an outdoor question, like if I've really wanted to learn how to do something outdoorsy and I'm on YouTube, where can I go to find that information I need? That's a great question, Dan Eastland. Yeah. So, uh, my channel is www.youtube.com slash innerbark outdoors. And so we're, we're releasing about two videos a week, um, and, you know, it ranges from, you know, survival stuff, outdoor stuff and DIY stuff. So you can find, uh, you know, progress on the cabin and show how I did the water collection stuff. 
here comes spring, we're going to do the solar install. So we'll figure out how I built the solar awning and wired everything together. So there's, there's tons of stuff. Um, there's survival stuff from both the jungle and also stateside. And so, yeah, someone wants to find some good content there. Um, it's also all in 4k. So if you want to watch it on your big TV, um, I, uh, I opted to go 4K early on to kind of future-proof the content. You can see the so, perfection of Andy's skin, not a single blemish, no matter how good the resolution. And absolutely no body hair, strangely enough. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, that's that's the best place to find it. So, yeah, that's the best place. And then, obviously, um, I have some channels that are really close to mine, uh, people that I trust to give good information that I also link in my channel as well. So, um, those are... like. Five. Yes, he's my he's my uh, brother from another mother. That's very cool. Yeah, the uh, I've been impressed with your your channel and production quality, and people don't truly appreciate it until they've actually made a couple videos and realize how many hours you spend uh, just shooting it, and then uh, how many hours it takes doing the editing too. Oh yeah, and it, it just uh, recently happened where excuse me, um, people in my agency started finding out that I did YouTube. And so they uh, get questions all the time about, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? And, uh, you know, I, I try and... I don't know. I'm find out. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, maybe I'll do a video on, like, how to shoot outdoor videos. Is that even possible? Ooh. That'd be crazy. Um, but, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that I've been um, working on for a long time, and I've you know, I've done the right schooling and I've kind of taken the certain steps to kind of put me and line me up uh, directly with that. So, um, yeah, people there, you know, always, you know, comment and message me about any questions, whether it's filmmaking or gear or whatever. Um, and yeah, just a good time. Um, we try to reply to every single comment or at least let you know that we've read it. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's coming along nicely. I can't even imagine having all the the comments and stuff that you probably get trying to keep track and just comment back on that. Yeah. Some of them are definitely trolling comments, you know, and, and we'll, we'll snap back at them. Um, but for the most part, we have a really good community. And, um, what's nice is that, um, other outdoor enthusiasts will comment and be like, well, you know, this is also a different way to do the exact same thing. And, you know, they, they might be in a different part of the country, a different region. And so I'm like, Oh, valid i like it so yeah it's a it's also like serves as like an informal forum as well yeah it's amazing it's amazing how much the climate actually affects especially fire making and oh, yeah. many different things yeah the uh the video i just did on the uh the slice to a kukri um because i showed that you can you know pull the bullet out of a cartridge and and use the gunpowder from the cartridge to help you start a fire and he was like well why would you waste a cartridge and like well I'm hoping that if you're hunting, you definitely have more than one cartridge. Uh, secondly, you know, like um, if you're if you're in my climate and it's been monsoon season for the past like three months, um, it is hard. You're hard pressed to find anything dry, even in the middle of a dead standing tree. So, um, you know, it just might be the last ditch effort you got. And most uh, most survival scenarios only last a couple of days. So, you know, if you're a good shot, you know, a, a twenty. 20 cartridge uh, package should, you know, hold you pretty well. And sacrificing one cartridge is better than dying of exposure overnight. Yeah, that'd kind of suck. Yeah, that makes the other 19 cartridges kind of useless. 
a little bit, a little bit. And then once you, uh, you know, shoot that animal, what are you going to cook? You know, so there, there, there's things. I'm going to put inside it to keep me warm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like so. uh, Star Wars Tom Tom style. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of which, I need to get myself that sleeping bag that is a Tauntaun so that I can like cuddle up next to a campfire. Yeah, you do need that. Yes. Everyone needs that. It'd be pretty funny. Oh, I need that. <laughs> well, you have anything else you want to want to plug or let people know about before we wrap this up? Um, Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, <laughs> what else? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I really appreciate you guys uh, inviting me on the show and letting me uh, talk a little bit about what I'm doing. Um, we're looking a little bit into the future to kind of promote some of the, uh, the dog rescues here in the, in the area. So there's a lot of people that have, um, rescued blue healers because, uh, zip my blue healer has been featured in a lot of videos, uh, and even has his own video. And so we're hoping to, uh, get some more dogs out of these high kill shelters and into good forever homes. So, um, that's kind of all I got love and life. Uh, blade show East, any chance we're going to get to see you? Uh, I'm going to try. A lot of it has to do with staffing with the sheriff's office. Um, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that the the citizens get the response that they need, and we are well manned. Hey, that's this problem for a weekend, man. Come on, this is Blade Show East. Yeah, but the weekend is like when people start doing stupid. Why is the rum always gone? <laughs> so, um, but I, I really do want to get out there. It's just uh, yeah, okay. State of Washington, no doing stupid. <laughs> the first weekend of June. <laughs> oh, man. Just, everyone just shake on it okay yeah nice let andy come visit us right uh but i would love to because it's supposed to be way bigger than uh the blade show west and you know i'm still blown away by everything at blade show west oh. so i mean whole, whole nother level yeah the auxiliary room for blade show east is as big or a little bigger than all of blade show west that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I would be, I would spend more money at Blade Show East than at Shot Show because Shot Show, you can only buy certain things. Yeah. You know, unless you're stripping it directly to the sheriff's office. But, um, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to get some cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, Blade Show, Blade Show is not, not a patch on Shot Show, but it is, it, I mean, it's obviously the largest knife show in the world. Mm hmm. It's still trying to drink from a fire hose. Yeah. Yeah. Even just having three days, just talking to some of the people you that I know, I don't even know like probably 70% of the tables that are there. And I have, I have trouble just making it around to talk to the people that I know. Yeah. Hell, I'll just go for Ethan Becker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to, or my table last year was like within eyeshot of uh, where Ethan was at with the, the K bar booth and uh, see him shaking hands with that people every day. He was, he was getting a workout. Mm -hmm. uh, we should probably start uh plug-in. I saw on my blade show contract that it said my, my table was the same as I had last year, three double B. Uh, if you are going to blade show East, check me out. Uh, I'll be there. Outstanding. You know, we should get somebody from blade show on. I, I got some questions I want to ask them. <laughs> nice. I mean, politely and respectfully, of course, but there's a few things I want to know. I got some, I got some VIP questions that, to ask. I saw that they were, 
at least on the website, had a, the CAP passes again, but I haven't seen anything come through about how we get that out to our people. Uh, it'll come, uh, they'll announce something mid-March. But I know a lot of people that are, uh, they're like, should I buy the early bird tickets now and not even do the, the CAP thing? So um, I'm a little confused about that, but whatever. Yeah. Um, I I have it from a, a reliable source that mid-March is when the dealers will get, um, they'll get a website and a code that they can then give to people that can log on and get the CAP, CAP passes, which um, I really want to quote um, Rick and Morty on this, but I'm just going to go with, uh, that's a whole lot of extra steps. Yeah. Just send me the paper passes and let me, and let me send them out to people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you don't get in or the, you get in an hour after the early bird or the, the super early bird tickets or whatever, but I don't know. Yeah. And that, that's the other thing that irritates me is that these VIP passes are a way for me to reward customers or guys that have really supported me that have helped out the business. You know, it's something special I can give them. Mm-hmm. The way they're being devalued right now, it, it frustrates me because it takes away the the reward that I can give to to my guys. Yeah, very true. So uh, your uh, homework for next time is to figure out your booth number again, unless you remember it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to ask that. <laughs> so yeah, just look for, just look for the redhead, and, and you'll be fine. Yeah, it's the exact same booth. Uh, it's the same corner I had last time. I too. Um, got the got grandfathered in but i still don't remember the actual number yeah yeah i'm at three double b and i'm right in between uh i would assume they're going to be there again the uh nicholas impregnated wood and uh phoenix abrasives um two big uh just look for all the the super bright spotlights under with all the the wood wood blocks yeah that's a pretty good place to be in I, uh, I use a lot of Nicholas, actually. Yeah, I've got a whole bunch of blocks that he he said he wants to see on a bunch of knives. So they kept uh, pointing pointing a bunch of their customers down to my table with some of the knives that I had their blocks on. So well, chop, chop. you've only got like four months. I know. Yeah, it's going to be here before I know it. See, Andy, aren't you glad you don't have these maker issues? <laughs> I know. All I got to do. Well, I did just get a anvil and forge, so who knows? Nice. But, How uh, big? No, uh, just a little guy. It's like a little 55 pounder. Yeah, it's by Atlas Forge, so it doesn't have the heel or the horn. Um, oh, it's the one you got at, at West? The yeah. yeah, so I'm, I'm going to futz around with that a little bit and see if it's, uh, you know, if it's really all the B's and E's that they say. But I wanted something small that wasn't, uh, you know, as efficient as possible and small, and I could just have it in the, the workshop and not have it be too cumbersome because... I still got all my reloading stuff and everything in there. So is that the one that's like a four inch by four inch, like post like square or, uh, it's like five inch by four inch, something like that or six inch. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's looks more like a Japanese, um, a Japanese anvil. Cause it doesn't have the, the horseshoe thing. Okay. One of my favorite Neanderthals uses a, uh, a square anvil and each face has got a different radius on it. And that's how he does his his plunge lines or the different radiuses on a knife. So the work surface is flat, but each side has got a different 
different shape to the radius. That's pretty cool. And that's what he wore. Yeah. Yeah, this one has it too, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know the dimensions um, off the top of my head. What makes his the coolest, though, is it's an old firing pin from a naval 16-inch gun. That's freaking sweet. Isn't it? A single coolest thing. Actually, yeah, no, that's the single, single coolest thing about him, and he is an interesting man. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's Stephen Fowler. Yeah. You can actually uh, find uh, a couple episodes with him off the on the podcast. Yeah, we need to have him back on. I've got some new metallurgical questions to ask. Nice. Well, I think we uh, ran this one out. Any final words? Uh, no, I'm good. Like, yeah, totally. Uh, well, my God, it's been like two hours. Um, no, I'm uh, I'm really happy you guys decided to have me on the show. Um, I still don't think I'm worthy of it, but uh, appreciate it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the year and see what it has in store for everyone. Very cool. Um, so, uh, Tacoma Field Knife and Ice Knife Dagger are available now, and you've got at least one new pattern coming out? Yes. To be determined? To be determined, uh, but I, I, of course, I always want to make it as, uh, you know, the as reasonable in price point, but also extremely effective. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in making things flashy for the sake of flashy. Um, and I, I understand that people work hard for their dollar. You make them flashy for the sake of upcharge. Come on, man. Oh, but that's where like the, some like the full customs or the semi customs. That's where, that's where those come in. I got to leave a little bit of room for the aftermarket guys. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Nice. <laughs> cool. Well, you can keep in touch with the the podcast at knifeperspective.com and you can uh, connect with the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Knife Perspective. And we're on a whole bunch of different ones for finding the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Tuned In Radio. Uh, if you can leave a review on one of those, that will uh, help us get found by other people. And you can get in touch with Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com and dogwoodcustomknives on Facebook and Instagram. And if you would like to email him, Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. And you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly, uh, com, and uh, just Cage Daily Knives on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Kyle at Knife Perspective and Kyle at CageDailyKnives.com, respectively, uh, for email. Thanks again, Andy, for being on the podcast. Hey, Kyle. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Kyle, are we going to do the, uh, we're going to announce the, the 2000 follower giveaway come be on the show thing uh yeah um if, if we're not we can just leave it with like a dirty team just like it is and then we'll talk about it later yeah we had a had a good suggestion for i just passed two thousand followers on instagram which uh I, I was surprised it took as long but uh glad to have a whole bunch of people that support me and uh i asked uh i was planning on doing a, a giveaway thing and a person uh asked the, for my giveaway thing to wait, wait, wait. to be on the is this for a uh, knife perspective or cage yeah, daily we're, we're getting there <laughs> so uh person asked to person asked to be on be on the podcast and um i thought that would be a good idea but uh when when knife perspective gets to 2000 so uh i think we'll try to do uh we're at like i think 360 people on instagram now so we've got a little ways to go but probably do a post um and then uh 
have people put a comment on there of who would actually want to be on the podcast and then choose from uh, do a random number generator and pick from those. Hey, Interbark guys, do you want to be on the same podcast that your mentor was on? Here's your opportunity. Yeah. Start following uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Knife Perspective on Instagram. Yeah. Absolutely. And Facebook. Yep. And I'll, link, I'll be sure to link so that they uh, also get the good word through that as well. Very cool. Yeah. We'll, man, let's see. There's my wife and Kyle's wife. And, man, we're going to be up to like seven listeners in no time. <laughs> Sick. Sick, bro. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, and uh, thanks for uh, tuning in. Say goodnight, Kyle. Goodnight, Kyle. Well, let's take it to the edge, because that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're going to talk about our big because that's what's expected. It's the night prospective. How's the how's the elbow or bicep? Uh, doing good. Um, doing good. What the heck? What the heck was that? Uh, that was my message <laughs> alert. Somebody just sent me a text message. That was loud um, as hell. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how to turn it off on my computer. <laughs> I'll have to get a teenager to help me. <laughs> Alrighty. That should also let you know that I'm so unpopular. That's the first text I've ever gotten while we were recording. But it's also like almost 10 o'clock where you're at. True.